Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. You're listening to the interview podcast, Voices for Nature and Peace, where we discuss issues of ecology, empire, justice, and consciousness. We feature a variety of guests who are aware of the challenges of our time and who are working to address them. Here's your host, Calibri Ter Sonnenblum. Episode 30, how the defund the police proposal was blocked in Minneapolis. In mid-July, Counterpunch published an article entitled Minneapolis Ballot Measure to Dismantle the Police Will Test the Strength of Our Movement. It was authored by Robin Wansley and Ty Moore. Intrigued by this article, I contacted Robin, and less than a month later, I interviewed her for this podcast. But already, the proposal, which had attracted so much national attention, was dead, killed by the city's undemocratic and bureaucratic processes. Robin and I talked in depth about how this happened, including how the activist community sabotaged itself by giving away its power to the city council. The movement against racist policing in Minneapolis is certainly not over, but a battle was lost, and Robin's analysis will be helpful for that movement, not just in Minneapolis, but around the whole nation. Robin is a labor organizer with Education Minnesota, a black socialist, and plays a leading role in the Twin Cities DSA. She was previously a staff organizer with 15 Now Minnesota and helped organize the fight to make Minneapolis the first Midwest city to win a $15 per hour minimum wage. I noticed that there's been some changes in what's been happening there in Minneapolis because the uh, article that you wrote in Counterpunch was talking about how the city council had prepared something to go in front of the voters. But then I guess that something called the Minneapolis Charter Commission has now prevented that from happening. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Wow. So yep. what's that? Um. So... Basically, the the proposal that city uh, city council members agreed to pursue around um, basically dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department was not able to move forward um, without having approval from the Charter Commission because it required changing uh, one of our, our I mean changing the basically cities like constitutional amendment process. Um, and based off of our current charter, it requires for a police department to exist and to have a certain percentage of police officers there. So because of that uh, constitutional kind of bylaw, um, in order to move things forward, uh, you, we, not we, but there's this bureaucratic process where to get those things changed, you have to go through the Charter Commission, which is comprised of uh, several, I, I can't remember the exact number right now, but all of these folks are appointed. They're not elected. Um, and basically they get to decide uh, whether or not amendments that should go to you know, a public democratic vote 
can't even make it to the public. Um, and in my experience in, in organizing in Minneapolis, they seem to be a city process designed um, to actually block transformative amendments or initiatives that is trying to be moved through the city process, especially from external groups or workers um, who are looking to really address uh, this city's deep inequities. And time and time again, without fail, they've constantly um, blocked those efforts, be it through a charter amendment, through a ballot petition. Um, so I was quite unsurprised that they basically, you know, delayed. Um, they didn't vote down the proposal, but delayed it so it wouldn't be able to um, be voted on by this upcoming election. Um, so that's where we're at right now. Um, they've delayed it for another, another 90 days to review. Um, and it's likely that the city is going to move forward with their own, own diluted process of, of having a year-long study and having community conversations around what alternatives to policing or reforms to policing can look like um, as a means of, of creating what they think is a democratic um, ordinance versus actually adhering to, you know, the more than 60% of Minneapolis residents who actually support a, a policy change or not even necessarily a policy change, but to vote on making policy changes around policing in our city. Um, so they're just bypass, bypassing the whole public like vote and democratic process at this current moment. <laughs> right. I, I hadn't heard of this this organ this uh, commission before. I, I lived in Minneapolis for a little while in the nineties, in the beginning of the nineties, and then again at the end of the nineties, and was uh, somewhat politically involved as an activist at the end of the nineties. And but I'd never heard of this of this commission, and it does indeed seem designed to be. Um, to, to to keep the will of the people from from happening and its membership <laughs> is really problematic too and seems like yeah. it doesn't reflect at all the um the the demographics or the politics of the city yes that's absolutely accurate yes yep. right yeah mm -hmm. so so all these so so all these headlines happened you know in in june when the city council first you know had their big uh, you know, they had that event where they put up the big poster, defund the police, made headlines everywhere, made a bunch of, you know, people panic and this and that. Uh, and that was inspiring to a lot of people, especially a lot of people, you know, who don't don't live there, who are like, wow, we're actually finally talking about these things. That's great. But now it seems like with this move from the commission that that particular process has, dare I say, fizzled out. Mm -hmm. What in terms of well, well, yeah. in terms of the city council and what it was trying to do. See, that's the tricky thing, as like we raised in the article. Um, while I would like to say that like city council members' intentions were in the right place, um, I highly doubt that most of them, especially those who came out, you know, quite early in support of defunding um, the police, actually had any intentions of of seeing this through. 
Um, I think, and they're, and they're quite knowledgeable about, you know, the bureaucratic processes that exist to, you know, stall and delay or just completely eliminate um, opportunities for the public to make transformative changes. Um, and that they, and that was one of the faults that we, we uh, highlighted in that article by allowing this process to fall into the city hands um, and just trusting that these progressive champions, these new progressive champions were going to be able to move through the bureaucratic, you know, hoops and have the political willingness to do so was going to be, um, was going to allow us to have this victory in the end. We were finally going to vote on defunding the police in November. Um, so I, I want to say that there, there was not there was not really a political willingness to see this through from the start, even from. Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, early June when they came out with um, Black Visions Collective and made that, you know, public um, and national declaration that they were committed to, you know, ridding our city of a racist police um, institution. Um, most of those folks have been part of blocking, you know, transformative policies in the past. Um and I, I don't have any faith that they were, <laughs> were wanting to see the charter do something else. Um, and I think that was one of the faults of our movement of, of, of seeing our leaders in, you know, city council as being accomplices to move this forward when really we relinquished power. To, to the city process. And we know the city process is an ineffective way to create change um, from start to finish, from allowing them to create the amendments um, versus our movements actually coming through with our own clear policy proposal and amendment to negotiate with the city around. Um, and then moving that through what you know, our movement spaces is now considering like a ballot initiative or a petition, um, like really building, you know, our own public uh, movements around our clear policy demands versus trusting, you know, inherently racist and and just uh, unpredict un unproductive city process to make those changes for us. Um, so just, yeah, I would say it, it wasn't, I, I would highly doubt if all those city council members back in June were like, yes, we're so sorry. We did not see this happen. I mean, we did not anticipate this happening. Um, especially in light of like those first, uh, after they made that that public declaration around um, defunding the police, as soon as they started getting pushback from my like, right wing and conservative folks in the city, less than 24 hours, most of our city council leaders, our chair, you know, I mean, our vice president um, and the president of the of the city council, Lisa Bender and Drea, all of them were literally saying, "No, that's not what we meant." <laughs> less than 24 hours after. Uh, that that press conference. So there, I don't think was ever, you know, a deep political willingness to see this through and to really, you know, maneuver this through the city processes um, so that it could happen and so that that democratic vote could, could actually happen to make these changes. 
Right. In in the article, you referred to some of the city council rhetoric as radical sounding. Uh, yes. and, and, and you used that twice, you know, as if to really stress that it was just um, a face maybe that they were putting on. Yes. I mean, you had a moment in, I mean, in the country, but in Minneapolis, where all power forces were completely weakened. They didn't know what to do. We had our governor and, you know, state leaders, as well as at a municipal level with Jacob and the city council, basically realizing they had no control over what was happening on the ground. And people had called their bluff. Um, And we're finally seeing them for who they are in terms of people who have a deep interest in protecting and preserving the status quo, Um, making sure that, you know, police continuously receive, you know, millions of dollars in funding that they say is to go and, you know, train out the racism in this department. And yet every year we're dealing with a fatality from them of a black and brown person like Something's not adding up. And literally in the uprising of that first week, all those folks were just completely stripped of their power. So this was in a way, you know, our movement granted at least our city council uh, members uh, this opportunity to save face as a political class to say, no, we are on the side of of change. We we have solidarity with you. We recognize, you know, the errors of our our mistakes we now realize that reform is, is not the pathway forward. Um, so it basically gave them a way to kind of reinstate, you know, themselves as a political class. And that had been weakened in prior weeks. And that's what this, this you know, that opportunity around the Charter Amendment presented to them. It wasn't about actually, you know completely reforming or transforming an inherently like racist political and economic system as they were saying they were committed to doing in all of their interviews, you know, with uh, national media outlets. But it was to save face and to reinstate, you know, the legitimacy of our political class and their political leadership in the city. Right. And when I hear you saying this, I'm really reminded of how people talk about the Democratic Party in general as being the, quote, uh, graveyard of social movements. <laughs> yes, Lord, that is accurate. Yes. That yes. They'll, they'll, they'll take on whatever rhetoric they need to sound like they are the friends of the left or the progressive, but that when it comes down to actually making any any real change or any real policies, they always abandoned them. Exactly. And Minneapolis is a key example of that. And if you even want to take it to its gross manifestations, we can go, you know, six to eight hours away to Chicago. Like we have Minneapolis and Chicago who've been these blue cities for decades. And you see the, the grossest, you know, racial and economic disparities um, exists in these cities where we're supposed to be, you know, democratic and, and, you know, committed to progressive change and issues, um, and committed towards anti-racism. And yet in every, you know, social, socioeconomic indicator, black and brown people and indigenous people, queer folks, trans folks are at the bottom levels (laughs) 
of their local societies um, in terms of income, in terms of employment, in terms of housing. Um, so it's a complete contradiction to, you know, what these parties is telling us, especially now, you know, with the presidential election coming up, you know, saying that we're here for change. We're here basically pandering for folks to get their votes. But we I mean, at the end of the day, it's very clear who their allegiance to is to It's to the the corporate elite It's to the affluent and the one percent folks It's not to us. And they will say and do whatever they think is needed to placate us in the temporary, you know, time span so that we don't go burn up shit again. <laughs> and so that they can make the power moves they need to make in order to appease the folks that they're actually beholden to. And it's not us. And that's what we literally saw here in the uprising. Um, we're seeing our city councils now go back and consider maybe we need to support um, our police chief and really give him an opportunity as a black man to rid racism out of, a again, an inherently racist system that's predicated off of, you know, regulating and policing and, and killing um, black folks. <laughs> um, like, this is where we're at right now. Or saying, you know, we... It, that's literally where we're at right now. And trying to get momentum again from our movement, you know, just from months ago was like tearing down everything, calling out everyone to now be like, okay, <laughs> how do now that the city process has has went through and it failed, how do we reinvigorate the public around reimagining policing? And it's a hard place to be in because we gave that power back to the, our local democratic leaders are the in those who we thought were the progressive wing of the DFL party or our local democratic party of our city, you know, elected leadership. We have that power back to them. And is where we are, it's like, yes, we're trying to dig ourselves out of a grave <laughs> right now and and figure out how to get back to where we were just just back in May. So how was that? That because we see this over and over again. But how was that in in this particular case that the power was given up to the uh, city council? Yeah, as I I mentioned earlier, it it started with um, Black Visions who through their past like four years of organizing um, within Black Visions and partic particularly through their um, their work with Reclaim the Block, uh, which was kind of the earlier um, organizing initiatives to actually strip funding from the police department and reallocate it towards um, community-driven alternatives to policing. So funding mental health providers, funding, you know, healers, like funding anything that actually deals with what, you know, creates conditions of instability and violence in our communities um, as opposed to allocating funding to those that perpetuate that violence. Um, so Black Visions um, have been doing this work um, in partnership with certain, you know, elected leaders in city council um, 
and have been trying to, you know, chip away at this. How do we weaken like the the support for policing in Minneapolis? Um, so by the time the uprising came, you know, we had this this space where the folks that was on the ground, the youth that was really leading the uprising, like none of these folks was organized in any space. Um, and then once things died down, I mean, I think Black Visions realized like this was a political moment to, to really uh, force a question to our, our local leadership around what side of history do you want to be on? Are you going to continue in light of what has happened to keep reforming a, a clearly unreformable institution? Or are we actually going to take serious um, the fact that if it's not, and it's not reformable, what do we need to do to replace it? Um, and as I think their relationships or their, their particular, you know, organizing style, again, they had in that moment um, the opportunity to, to create this amendment um, proposal around what that alternative would be, what that replacement would be. And they did that in partnership with some of those um, city council members who came out, you know, to their actions saying that we're committed to um, defunding and dismantling the police. Um, so they worked in partnership. I would say the Black Vision staff worked in partnership with certain uh, city staff, I mean, um, city council members around the amendment. And those things was not, and I think that was one of the ways in which power was shifted to the city process. Um, that was an opportunity for Black Visions who has this a massive network of supporters and, and, and partners, like union partners, community partners. They have a, a, this base of support that really increased uh, drastically during the uprising. Um, and that was an opportunity to present to their supporters and to the organizations and community groups that are in alignment with them around, you know, alternatives to policing to say, what is it that we want to do in this moment and policy-wise? Because a lot of these groups, and I want to highlight, other groups have been doing work around policing prior to you know, Black Visions and Reclaim the Block. Um, in 2016, uh, Communities United Against the Police uh, organized around a petition ballot to uh, basically force uh, police officers at an individual level to cover their own misconduct, you know, insurance. Uh, because each year the city, and this is with taxpayers' dollars, pays out millions of dollars to victims of, of, of police attacks or, or basically to pay out to victims of police brutality. Um, so this was this, their way of saying, no, we should not be fronting the bill for law officers who are racist and who are abusing their power and terrorizing our communities. We should not be helping them get paid or paying the victims for that. So there have been groups that have been talking about police liability assurance, uh, some of these groups have also put out, you know, making a community um, oversight board uh, where, you know, local residents have the ability to oversee the police department and fire and hire people. So this was an opportunity to bring some of those groups in and say, look, how do we bring 
the policies and the, the recommendations that you all have been organizing around for years and actually have a strong base, a strong policy proposal that we can bring, bring to the public that makes it clear what we're trying to replace this department with. And instead of doing that, there was only negotiations and partnerships with the city. And in that, of course, the city wants to keep language, policy language, especially when it comes around change, as ambiguous as it can be. Uh, and that is a, a, a political maneuver because by letting it be ambiguous, when it fails, when it doesn't translate to, you know, the larger public's um, understanding and the public isn't bought into it because it's so unclear, it then gives them ammunition to say, well, you know, maybe this isn't the way we need to go. Maybe we need to spend, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars partnering with the University of Minnesota to do a study on this. Uh, and then maybe we should create a work group um, to then talk about the findings of that study. Like it creates a space for them to delay and delay install to, you know, the point the issue isn't even relevant. It's not, not necessarily relevant, but basically like we talked about basically to break the momentum of our movements and our grassroots efforts on the ground to make change possible. Um, so they came through with this very ambiguous charter amendment proposal that divided the public. Cause people was like, what is this? We were talking about replacing the police with uh, a center for community safety and violence pre prevention but yet there's still a clause in here that says, you know, an uh, undetermined number of peace officers can still be a part of this. So are we just rebranding police officers? Like it was unclear at the very basis of what it was. So people were like, wait, we're, we're for oversight over the police or we're for, you know, it, it just created a very unclear basis as to what, are we talking about in terms of this alternative to policing and the proposal that was designed in partnership with those elected leaders, um, created that confusion. And that's how, again, that transfer of power was made possible because then they got to set the tone. They set the tone with this very ambiguous policy proposal. And then our movement had to be, kind of pulled into supporting it because it was the only proposal at the time about actually responding to this political moment and responding to this historical um, dilemma around racist policing in our society. So you had the left or progressive movement, you know, having to galvanize around this very unclear um, policy proposal and galvanizing around it through a city process that is designed to stall and delay and to basically minimal well to minimalize our movements you know momentum um so the fact that we expended so much energy around a policy proposal that created and amplified divisions in our communities rather than unify it um and then to actually you know use it as an organizing opportunity to build on some of the, the phenomenal um, efforts that came out of the uprising where we saw neighborhoods forming their own community defense committees. We saw 
communities creating their own forms of mutual aid assistance around food distribution and medical care. Like those are the things that we could have built upon and implemented in our proposal um, as an organizing opportunity. And yet we had to miss out on that in order to go through the city process that wasn't designed to, to create or honor or uplift the transformative changes that's needed in our moment. So that's where that transfer of power really took place by really honing in into this very, you know, undemocratic city process around a proposal that was created by our elected leaders that didn't represent or really respond to some of the long-time work that had been happening in our communities or to what was being, you know, shown in light of the uprising. Um, so that in my, my understanding is where that power really was shifted. That's a very informative story. And I think that those are the kinds of details that a lot of people are not hearing right now. And this is very helpful, I think, for other activists and organizers in other cities to hear this kind of thing and to try to, to learn from it. I think that this is that lesson, once again, that once you enter a, um, a place where you're trying to compromise with the establishment, it seems like that always ends up benefiting the status quo. Yes. Yes. Because now we're, again, we're on the the defense. We're trying to regather ourselves because that was, you know, that process got started in June and just now wrapped up in August. And now folks are also, people were pulled with the electoral, you know, arena. We had some very important contested fights that a lot of our movements was also being pulled to, you know, organize around. And now we have a similar predicament where we're talking about like uh, the uh, the the horrible dynamics of the Democratic Party that's showing itself in this moment with Biden and Harris against Trump and Mike Pence. Um, people are now having to figure out how do we then move into a process of preserving um, our current racial capitalist state. Um, either we get to go with Hitler. And and what we see is fascism, or we go with um, fascism, Hitler light 1.0, who has a black woman leader um, on his his, his ticket, um, that symbolic gesture of representation. So now we're we're moving to another space where the political arena is so it presents such a desperate and despairing um, option to the public. So there's so much burnout and just, it's, it's just, it's basically, which is what capitalism do, which is what racism does is constantly present these crises um, to working class people, especially to, you know, poor and working class black and brown and indigenous folks um, so that they don't have this full capacity to engage in like our, the organizing arena. Um, so that they can actually utilize the power that they have as a collective to really strip power away from these places, as we saw we could do back in May, in early June. Um, so people are tired. And now around the police, I mean, the defunding police, we're over here trying to, like, you know, 
lick our wounds and like regather ourselves and re and re-energize ourselves to be like, yes, we can do this. Let's go for a year long process of, of maybe doing a petition or how do we contest this or mobil mobilizing out to these, again, city organized community conversations where we know the folks that they're trying to pull is the right wing, it's the conservatives, it's the, you know, all, uh, not all, well, man, yes, all lives matter, but blue lives matter, folks. So now we need to get ready to mobilize our people to turn out and, you know, push back on that. And that's hard. I mean, it's tiring. But now we're on the defense because we allowed the city process to take a precedence for guiding and determining how we make change. And it's it's a sucky place to be. And but also it's inspiring at the same time, because then you go and look at what's happening in Portland. You go and see what's happening now in Chicago with, you know, black and brown working class and poor youth um, literally going after Michigan Avenue. You know, the capitalist uh, kind of yellow brick road basically in Chicago. And that's my hometown. Like you're seeing, you know, these forceful movements still taking place months and months later um, in these cities and they're growing and they're still continuing and then it's almost like you said, like a take from Minneapolis lesson. Like we were the epic center and we went through that phase where we had a forceful grassroots response to our conditions of racism and racist policing in our city. And we then relegated that energy into a political arena that that yielded what it was supposed to yield to to really stall out our energy to deplete us to put us on the defense and to keep us divided as a movement as working class people as black and brown folks and indigenous folks and that is that's not where I hope other cities as they're trying to wrestle and organize, I hope they don't move forward in the same way. Um, and I hope that we're able to, again, yes, you know, lick our wounds, but take the time to, you know, heal ourselves. Cause it's been again, one crisis after another at a global scale and a local scale of, from COVID to George Floyd being, you know, lynched in front of our eyes. And then now as, you know, a labor um, activist with the, the teachers union, now we have these fall reopenings and, you know, this, the, the fears around COVID again, and then maybe a, a eventual shutdown, like all these crises that are really forcing two realities. As one of my elders, um, Lewis, uh, has shared, it's forced our country, it's forced our people to be uh, in the delivery room <laughs> as we're trying to birth out a new reality, a new existence, a new way of relating with each other that's not attached to exploitative, violent, repressive, you know, systems. And we're also in the hospice, you know, waiting room as well because capitalism is doing what it needs to do 
to basically dig its own grave with these crises, these perpetual crises. People are starting to see at a mass level that this system is unsustainable and it's constantly putting us and threatening um, our, our, our daily existence, our ability to, to be in relationship with each other, our ability to care for ourselves in our communities. It doesn't provide us with the basic things. It keeps extracting more from us. Um, and it clearly sees us as, you know, expendable. Um, and that's been definitely shown in the COVID crisis. So it's put us in this very transformative and inspiring space, but it's also of like this attachment to the old world and we're watching it die out, <laughs> but there's still the attachment to it and the fear of how do we go forward in birthing something new that actually can uplift the humanity that exists in all of us. Um, how do we pursue that? And I'm hoping with our police debate, as well as with COVID, as our movement is trying to figure out how do we move, how do we go forward in this moment? Um, we really take, we, we don't abandon our imagination and our commitment to birthing something new. Yeah, could you, on that very subject, could you say a little more about some of the grassroots things that were happening on the ground or, or still are? It sounds like there is some some mutual aid. You mentioned uh, local defense networks. It seems like that's a good place to start. Yeah, so there's um, neighborhood associations or just, just never, like organically through during the uprising, you know, the police... Um, and our local military coalesced to basically um, subdue uh, our protesters in the streets. So when people were dealing with, you know, issues, just basic issues, like there's a fire on my block, like the police or the fire department, none of these systems that are designed or we're told to serve and protect us was, uh, they weren't showing up. So communities, you know, in their local blocks, and we're talking about people who had lived together for years, may have talked to each other and may have never, ever spoken to each other, were forced to connect and really design like their own local approach to dealing with conflict or dealing with issues on their block. And those generally form like local uh, community defense committees. Um, so there's still a lot of those that exist here in South Minneapolis where blocks are getting together, you know, every week and figuring out how are they addressing harms or addressing issues on their block. Um, we have, even in North Minneapolis, a, a lot of that is has been happening where, you know, weekly, um, and let me provide context, North Minneapolis is... Um, uh, one of well, the segment of Minneapolis where uh, primarily working class and poor black people have been concentrated. Um, and just there's a historical aspect of divestment um, from that community. Um, and that has, of course, created uh, conditions of violence that happen in that community. Um, so we're seeing, you know, residents. Uh, basically come out and provide for the basic needs of their, their neighbors through uh, weekly food distribution sites. You can see those all the way up on North Minneapolis. Uh, I mean, North Ellen Broadway Avenue in North Minneapolis. Um, even today there's a guns up 
no, love up, gun down um, protest that's been aimed to really, you know, bring the youth in who don't feel supported, who don't have opportunities and are turning towards um, crime or, or other violent activities uh, to really bring them in and into a community um, and uh, that affirms them, affirms their blackness. Um, so we have communities that's like responding to, you know, issues that have always been prevalent in their communities, but they're not looking to the city. They're not looking to the police. They're not looking to these, you know, traditional spaces of power to really meet those needs. They're showing up for themselves. Um, so we have a lot of those grassroots and mutual aid efforts. I think one of the most also prominent ones that we're seeing right now is our sanctuary movement, um, where a lot of displaced homeless people during the uprising and COVID, like they weren't able to house themselves. Um, so, and we have a current housing crisis because housing is so unaffordable for most uh, working class people in Minneapolis. Um, so we had folks come out during the uprising um, and usher our homeless and displaced community um, from in occupying a hotel. And then that ended up then transitioning them over to our parks. Um, so a lot of our folks around housing have been showing up for our homeless and displaced community. And there's been tons of mutual aid. We're talking about community defense, like people volunteering day in and day out, in addition to their full-time jobs to provide security, to provide um, medical uh, support, because a lot of people out there deal with substance abuse um, and a variety of mental health issues. Uh, we have people, uh, which was some of the things that I was part of with uh, the Democratic Socialists of America's uh, food justice program, uh, we had a meal prep team that provided 1,200 meals to our homeless and displaced community on a weekly basis. So we have people who's providing free meals to people out there. Um, so that's been also just, it's been amazing to see our folks show up for our homeless community um, in that way. Uh, we've also formed, you know, autonomous zones, um, particularly around where George Floyd was killed. Um, that's been deemed the, the South Minneapolis autonomous zone. And people have kept that block on lock, even though their current city council um, uh, person, uh, Vice President Andrea Jenkins, a black trans woman, um, is currently trying to move for uh, that block to be reopened, even though the community is saying, no, this, this should not be. This is a historical landmark in our city right now. And it should be treated as a sacred site. Um, so we have folks out there who are still doing mutual aid, providing meals to the community. Like it's, a, it's literally a community convening, like center, a hub um, for the Bryant area over there. Um, so it's people are literally saying, no, I have my block. I'm not looking for others, like literally starting in their own backyard of like, I can't push for, I mean, pushing for a huge transformation of society where we do, you know, again, honor the humanity in each other. And a lot of ways is starting in this like block by block work with our mutual aid efforts. Like if I can't even treat you like a human and you're my neighbor, like, I shouldn't have to wait for the revolution and the, and the full, like, liberation from a capitalist society 
to do that. So people are literally transforming how they relate and support and care for each other through some of these mutual aid and grassroots and more, you know, ground level activities activities that still are continuing. It's not at the massive level. And we do have our, you know, protests, typically maybe one or two per week that still draws numbers and things of that nature. But people are saying like, no, I I need to be looking in my block right now um, and making sure, you know, folks are not just looking to call the cops anytime something happens. Let's Let's figure out how to reconcile those things amongst our own community and amongst our, our neighbors. So that has been inspiring and that work is continuing. Um, it has been throughout the summer. So that has been um, inspirational. In a state of shock after the war. We interrupt our program for a brief message. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting Colibri on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Colibri. That's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. And now, back to our regularly scheduled... Yeah, I'm very inspired to hear about it. And of, of course, you know, it, this is not the sort of thing that the mainstream media tends to cover because it's just not, you know, as, as, as sexy as people starting a fire or whatever. Exactly. Yes. No, those part are not. No, they want to honor only when they think we're scaring um, racists or white people when we're we're tearing up private property that gets the news line <laughs> that's it no but yes where we're and even in that how that's framed that's a whole different situation but no they're not honoring how we're actually relating to each other in a way that actually honors our humanity that honors our environment um like it's and that's that piece, I'm, I, I am grateful that we're still moving that forward um, in light of everything that's happened with the Charter Amendment, with the uprising. Like that's that's definitely that's necessary as we try to do abolitionist work or any type of revolutionary organizing or transformation. We have to start with how do I see you um, as my neighbor, as my relative, as my peer. Um, how do I start to break down those bound those the divisions that we've all been conditioned around in terms of race, or gender, sexual, I mean, sexuality and class? Um, we need to start breaking those prejudices down, <laughs> um, and that starts in your own neighborhood. You don't have to wait till someone gets killed to start doing that work. I mean, in person is where all of those things break down. I mean, speaking as a queer person myself, like I, I've had a number of experiences like that in my life where, you know, people who were, you know, raised in a homophobic way or whatever, you know, oh, they get to know me. Oh, like I see that what I saw on television or what my church told me is like, you know, ridiculous because, oh, you're just another person. I mean, so I think that's always how those kinds of changes have happened. And I feel like, and, and not to just throw a wrench in this discussion, but like, I feel like, um, those things happen well in person, but not so well on social media. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which presented a really, you know, a major challenge to our movement. Um, because 
at the end of the day, like we're still in a global pandemic that has killed hundreds and thousands of people, you know, in the U.S. Um, and disproportionately black and brown folks in the U.S., but millions across the entire world. Um, and I would say that was one of the challenges that, you know, the the movement faced as they were trying to organize around, you know, defunding um, the police, that charter amendment. Um, as I highlighted, like, you know, one of the weaknesses is we, we couldn't build um, and do deep organizing um, that was necessary to, be, to get that buy-in from different, you know, sections of our black and brown communities and working class communities. We couldn't do that deep political education because, I mean, safety, like we're over here trying to organize, you know, several thousand folks. How do you do that? Um, when you can only be six feet from each other and thinking about space, you know, parks. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of the tensions and the divisions that were amplified during the charter debate is because a lot of that organizing um, had to happen through social media or through, you know, communi different communication channels. Um, and that added to the lack of clarity too. I mean, it, there's only so many Zoom meetings you can do. There's only so many, you know, visuals you can put out um, that you think is going to, you know, help with the narrative or messaging as to why this is significant and why people should support this. Um, and I, I do, and honestly, like the times where I did see you know, the possibility was when it was in in-person gatherings, like in on July 4th, I went to one of the community conversations that was held by a city council member um, at a park. And as soon as, you know, DSA, we were there and talking about the significance of this, like people got it. People understood in that moment. And it could be just like in person, people had the opportunity, you know, afterwards to, you know, have follow-up questions and you get to sense people. Like, it, it was a different way. It's, I mean, a different way of engaging one another um, that I think helped with, you know, bringing people on or seeing why they benefited or should support a charter amendment. And that was just challenging to do through social media where, you know, things get miscommunicated. People also have different profiles um, that they lead with in this space. A lot of the stuff was ego. A lot of the stuff was trauma-led. Like, and all those things out before COVID is already just amplified within social media. <laughs> and those things just happen, you know, just pour gasoline on it and it just exploded during the charter amendment. So that did, that. yes, our COVID times has also presented you know, us with a challenge of how do we do that deep, you know, relational organizing with each other around, you know, these these key issues, these these key um, dilemmas that needs to be transformed. Um, how do you do that through social media and every late, be it labor or grassroots group or abolitionist group? I think all of us have struggle to to really figure out how we we continue that work in in our new times um so yeah yeah the social media one is has been tricky yeah and i think that's an unfolding you know ongoing discussion you know and and of course social media itself is also evolving but i do just sometimes wonder is this 
is it one of the master's tools that can't be used to dismantle the master's house, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, we've seen it in, I'm just thinking, you know, with the Arab Spring um, back in 2011, um, social media plays such a role in building, you know, international solidarity um, with, the the revolution seg revolutionary segments of working class people um who you know overthrew uh, that the the egyptian government at that time um and it was twitter twitter was like the thing that was organizing other you know people across the world we see the same thing with like the bds movement in palestine right now um, a, a, that movement has relied a lot on social media, you know, Twitter and Facebook um, to build, you know, support for boycotts, the BDS boycotts around, you know, institutions that support Palestine and support, you know, the terror in Gaza. Like um, we've seen the potential of social media, you know, helping advance revolutionary causes and, and movements all across the world. Um, and how, again, yes, how do we, you know, leverage those, those, I guess, advantages in our own local movements? It's, it's something that we're all still trying to wrestle with and, and <laughs> figure out and experiment and fail at and try something different and try at it again. Right. Yeah. Because obviously any of these technologies can be useful. I mean, the telephone, you know, was used for organizing a lot. You know, um, phone trees were a really big part of organizing back in the day in like the 70s, 80s, you know. Mm -hmm. But the, kind of the difference with social media was that the phone company wasn't listening into your call and exactly. deciding, right? Yeah. And, and deciding if the person you're talking to is going to get to hear what you're saying or not, because yeah. that's what the, the social media companies are doing is using algorithms to like make some things, you know, not be as popular or you can't see them or whatever. I mean, and so, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, like I said, it's an ongoing thing, but but I think it is something that we all need to to look at. And um, uh, you know, there can also just be a day where, like, oh, Facebook decided to shut down all of these groups that were related to Palestinian to Palestinian liberation, yeah. for example. You know, and so yeah. so as long as we don't have control of those um, those mechanisms, then 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 um, their value, I guess, is is ultimately kind of limited. You know. You're absolutely right about that. It's it, yeah, it can be used to police and censor, and also you know block the the advancements of our movements. You're absolutely right. These are yeah, these are tools used by the state too to monitor us. Um, and I just saw that today with Chicago. Now you know with with COVID, you know policing. Um, Chicago officials are now looking at you know using people who are entering Chicago's like social media as a way to verify if they've been um, following, um, you know, quarantine restrictions. And over in Chicago, they've, you know, approved the mandate to, to use policing as a, a response to um, reinforcing restrictions, being you can get, get arrested now for these things. So you're using social media, people's individual social media to monitor them and to use that as grounds for, you know, bringing them into the criminal justice system. 
Um, so you're absolutely right. <laughs> they could be tools and that can be used, but also used against us. And you're right, as long as we don't have control. And that's something that I have seen, at least in the uprising around Minneapolis. Um, we've seen the, you know, the rise of some of our independent um, media companies and, and organizations really rise um, and have been amongst the few on the ground to give accurate depictions about what was happening as opposed to BBC or um, Fox News, who were just saying, you know, we were a bunch of hoodlums uh, tearing up things and setting things on fire and we should all go to jail. Uh, they were actually showing, you know, when the police were uh, provoking um, things and, and setting off things and harming peaceful protesters and shooting them and tear gassing them. Like, it, it, our independent media plays such a, a important role in offering an accurate depiction of what is happening when our racial uh, capitalist state launches offensive attacks on our movements. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I, we need to scale those up and just continue to invest in those and, and expand them. Yeah. A lot of my own activism has been around um, alternative media and independent media. And I, I feel like there's this, um, challenge we face where people don't consider independent or alternative media to be real media, you know? And so, you know, they, they're, they're always like, oh, no, it's not, you know, we didn't really get coverage, you know, unless the Star Tribune, you know, covered us, you know, you know, and, you know, but you're right. Of course, you I mean, Unicorn Riot is, you know, that's where I've been going yes. to find out what's going on. Cause I know, yes. the, I know the Star Trip is not going to tell me the truth, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. No, the piece, or even some of our own local progressive ones, like NPR, I was on a piece for them uh, where they were doc apparently creating a timeline of events of, you know, from when the third precinct was taken over and then set ablaze. And everything was like, it came from a pro-cop perspective. And then you go over to Unicorn Riot and they actually show, you know, minute by minute what was happening. Um, and it's like, hold on, there's a there's a clash here. So uh, yeah, it's hilarious that, you know, we discount the legitimacy of our independent news companies and organizations, but we uplift the, the alternative fact gurus like Fox news who report nearly nothing accurate. So <laughs> you are absolutely right on that one. I wanted to go back to a word you used a few minutes ago um, that we haven't talked about specifically. You used the word abolition before. Yes. And so I'm hoping you can um, say more about what you mean by that. So that so abolition, and this is the significance of it. So Black Visions, again, one of the leading organizers who uh, really galvanized the the call to dismantle the police and then the subsequent subsequent um, charter amendment, uh, they organized from an abolitionist politics um, and, and framework. Um, and abolition in itself um, is a rhetoric or, you know, or political orientation that has been part of the African, at least African-American diaspora for, for centuries, um, especially, you know, regarding our own position in the society. Like, yes, people are going to want to abolish, you know, the institutions that enslave them, that 
constantly takes their land, uh, that constantly authorizes the genocide of their communities. Like, yes, people don't want those things to exist. They don't want them to feel, you know, be a little bit better, to kill a little less people. Like, no, you should go. Um, so from that orientation, um, that I mean, that's where the dismantle the police department um, came from. It's like, it needs to go. We don't even need to save it. We don't need to try to reform it. It just needs to go in its entirety. Um, so abolition is something that has guided um, that particular wing of, I would say, our Black leftist movement here in Minneapolis. Um, and because those calls for abolition and this defunding was very united together, and not every, and this was new, like this was a new kind of word, as you mentioned, or new idea and imagination that was actually made public to a lot of folks. Like, you know, there's a lot of us that identify as abolitionists or, you know, have done things under an abolitionist politics, but you don't frame it in that way. You don't talk about it publicly because, you know, working class people, they're, it's, it's, it's one of those trigger words for them because just like when we said defund or dismantle, not defund, but dismantle the police, the people, most working class people and black folks just saw the world in complete chaos. They had memories from when they watched Purge 1 or Purge 2 just coming to the forefront of their minds. Like everything is going to be lawlessness. Who's going to care for me? There's people are just going to kill everybody. Like literally the world is going to fall apart as you know it. Um, so that is what tri abolition triggers for a lot of working class people. So when they heard that, they was like, oh, hell no. Even on a basis of like, you know, our charter proposal being unclear, it did have, again, the, uh, the proposal to replace the, the department with an institution that was going to be, you know, community focused and community driven. People ignored that piece because that was like, all I heard was abolition and dismantle, and that means lawlessness, no order, is just complete chaos. Um, and that's, that's now has put, you know, a lot of, that placed kind of this divisiveness during the Charter Amendment where it was like the abolitionists versus like the reformists. Um, and you had, yes, you had a wing of folks, again, Black Visions, that's saying, no, this is the time to get rid of it. And you had the other side saying, well, maybe we should let our chief, our black chief, our first black uh, police officer chief, um, actually take the lead on this, make the changes that's necessary. Or maybe we should try some of these other reforms to the department. Like, we're not ready to get rid of these things. Um, so, I mean, abolition, it's, it's becoming introduced and has... I think the uprising allowed it to have a had allowed it allowed you know hundreds and thousands if not millions of people you know hear the word or hear some of the rhetoric that goes with it but this is the tricky piece that and we talked about that too in the the article that we released about how do we frame that abolition like 
one of my friends um, over Isaiah talked about, again, like if we give the slave uh, slavery example, like slaves wasn't thinking I want to abolish like the entire system of slavery. They just knew I this shit ain't right. My family is getting sold off. I'm getting beaten. I'm pretty sure this is not how life should be lived. Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm a human and should be treated as such. What do I need to do to like make that reality happen? Do I need to escape? Do I need to go down the Underground Railroad? Do I need to link up with some of my other, you know, comrades on the plantation? You know, my mom, my kids or something to figure out how we navigate this or do something different. Like they didn't call it abolition. Um, and that's just one of the things of it's a trigger word. But abolition has been inherently part of our, as, as Black people in this country, existent. I mean, it, it's been part of our realities. We've never really sought to keep these institutions in place that constantly wreak havoc and harm on our communities, be it on a political level or economic level. Um, what we do get caught up in, and this is thanks to like Democratic Party, as we talk about, we get caught up in these in this space where we know these things aren't, they shouldn't exist, but the attachment to what we know, like it's that, that analogy of like the devil you know is sometimes better than the, the, the devil that you don't know right. <laughs> or <laughs> the angel that you ain't came into contact with. Um, like we go with the devil that we know. Quite often we know, you know, the police ain't shit. We know they don't serve or meet our needs, but... I feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that some type of institution exists that is supposed to keep law in order. And all I'm hoping is that maybe if we get rid of all the racist people in it, or maybe have new leadership, or I have more say over it, it might be better. Um, so we're also, we're constantly put in this, 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 this limbo of like, yes, these things should not exist because they constantly perpetuate violence and genocide towards our community. But we also fear what life will be without them. And we end up being put in this predicament where we preserve these very institutions. Um, and we're seeing that now, I think, play out with like Biden and Harris. Like, Kamala Harris has literally been put into a position where it's like, yes, you're showing up as a black woman with all your leadership and all the achievements that you've done and having navigated a racist political and criminal justice system. Um, but you're also showing up for a role that's basically about preserving an inherently racist and imperialistic country and regime that then supports and fully funds a criminal justice system that targets, that incarcerates, that murders black folks as well. Yeah, both here and overseas, <laughs> you know, I mean, yes. that's that's and and I'm I'm always grateful when there's people who make that connection and see that, you know, that it, the same thing that is assaulting people here is you know, when when we went over there and, and killed Gaddafi, you know? Yes. Yes. 
there, there we had a middle class country with free health care, free education, you know, a secular system, you know, where, where women were, were free, you know, to, 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 to have their place in, in, in society, you know, and, and weren't subjugated as they were in other countries there. And that's the country that, you know, Hillary and, and Obama went in and destroyed, you know? Exactly. I mean, we've had Obama again, these contradictions, our first black president, um, ever. And, you know, at the same time was part of deporting more immigrants than any Republican or conservative, you know, chief, um, uh, yeah, uh, president prior to his ascendance. And at the same time, we had the birth of our Black Lives Matter under, you know, the constant reign of police brutality in their communities. We had these two things happening under our first Black president. And because of his position, because of what he's attached to, you know, that was not a space that he could come in and transform. That was his role as as chief of officer, chief officer of the United States, was not to go in and be like, I I hear you, black people. Let's pass reparations. Let's do, (laughs) let's get these police out of your community. Uh, Like, no, it's let's give you some body cams. And maybe, you know, the next time a black person gets shot, then we'll have footage. And then we can take that footage through the criminal justice process and maybe get a conviction. Like that's that is so we constantly as black people like like honoring and I think there's fear of that of like if we honor that being part of this country, being in this country, and our history in this country has basically been about ridding the racist and capitalist elements that exist that has not only harmed us but everyone that has been forcefully brought into this country. But at, but we also recognize that, you know, our lived experience, like while we're trying to lean into this, and it's sad that it's c- considered radical of like having your basic humanities and rights and needs be honored. Like those are radical things. And, and that's the thing of like being, having the right to sit at a, a lunch counter you know, back in the 50s was seen as radical. and But that was part of the Black imagination. That was part of like an abolitionist imagination of we should have public spaces that's accessible to everyone, regardless. Regardless. And it's really brought to bear of like, the, just again, the inherent contradictions that that comes with the lived experience of being, you know, African Americans in this country of like we and that the beauty of it, because if we didn't have, you know, black leaders that lean into, you know, that imagination into, you know, I know I want to check out this angel that that I ain't never seen before the unfamiliar. Um, we wouldn't be where we are right now. We wouldn't still have these subsequent, you know, global civil rights movements still forming to this day. So it's also necessary, you know, for change, the transformative change that has come into our communities, especially for black folks. It's been necessary to have 
segments of our leaders, of our community members, lean into the unfamiliar, to lean into that uh, imagination, to lean into abolition, essentially. Because <laughs> they're like, no, these things should, there's no saving, there's no reimagining of these things. These things need to go. We've tried for a couple centuries now. With that, I think any economist or, you know, statistician, statistician could say the odds of them changing is really not high. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, it's nothing new to the Black existence in this community. I think it's just being re, reinvigorated in the public arena, um, especially in Minneapolis, where we were the epic center. And to have, you know, one of our major, you know, Black Lives Matter groups literally say abolition is the only response in this moment. There's no reform. Because in the past, the Black Lives Matter moments, movements, or, you know, when other Black women and men and trans and youth were killed, what we heard was, or what our calls were met with was just reform. Let's pour more money into this system. Let's pour more money into training police who ain't trying to be trained. Like, reform. That's all we've been met with. And then in this particular moment to have our group say, nah, we're not even going to let you come to us with that. Abolish. Let let that go. Right. It's and and, and I mean, yeah. And, and, and kind of to maybe sort of pull all this together in the direction that it's going, you, you quote Angela Davis in your article too, you know, who <laughs> says, you know, that, you know, it's about revolution. Yes. Because really, when we're talking about abolition, it's not just the police, it's not just the prisons, it's really the entire system that exactly. has to go at this point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's why, it's like, of all elements of why I think Black people are so pulled into, you know, a multitude of space, well, not multitude, between this limbo of abolition, but preserving the state as is because as soon as we're talking about getting rid of the police yes like and this is presented in some of the union work that i'm doing around like you know getting rid of cops from our schools it's like yes okay we we ended that contract in our schools so our kids no longer have to be or have encounters with police officers in our schools through their elementary formative years but as soon as they leave that school they return to their communities that doesn't have adequate housing. Um, there is no job nearby that pays a decent livable wage for them to even afford their dilapidated housing. And it could be that their housing hasn't been upgraded by its slumlord in so many years that lead might be present, but you might not have access to the healthcare you need in order to get, you know, the asthma or other respiratory um, issues that you've developed from living in these lead infested homes. Um, so it's all those things of like, shit, okay, we talked about getting the cops out, but my housing is still, it's still not right. So what, what, I, I can get rid of this, but I need something right now for this. And it's all interconnected. You can't get rid of, you know, cops in 
in Minneapolis and then keep them, you know, in full force in, in Chicago and our neighbors next door. Like that's just, that, that's not freedom. And I forget who says, that. I think it's Martin Luther King who talks about, you know, injustice um, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, and that's the basis of it. Like we can't, and that's part of even as a socialist and uh, my own, like, you know, Marxist perspective, like Marx talk, talks about that. Um, capitalism cannot be rid, like eliminated from one part of the world. And then <laughs> the rest of the world can be in, in, you know, socialist happiness. Like that's not how that works. Capitalism is an end all be all function. It strives to occupy all land, all territories, all communities. It does not aim to coexist with anything else that threatens its ability to maintain power and profit and private dominance and white supremacists. <laughs> Supremacy, like it doesn't, no, it doesn't do that. So our efforts of abolition, like we, <laughs> it can't coexist. We can't say cops gone. But maybe we could keep, you know, crappy housing around for a couple of years. Um, right. So that this is not that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. Right. Because obviously in the United States, capitalism was based on stealing land and resources from one set of people and then, yeah. you know, importing another set of people, you know, and enslaving them to do. I mean, this is what. This is how capitalism formed here. This is this is its yep. backbone. I'm not. I mean, can you, if, if you take that out, there's nothing left for capitalism to stand on. Exactly, which is why, I like claims for reclama uh, reparations or you know land reclamation and redistribution amongst our indigenous communities, um, is so. It's such a, again, it's again, in leaning into our abolitionist framework, that makes sense. I mean, you're talking about, yes, giving back the, the very um, elements that allowed the system to grow as well as continue to thrive. Um, back to the very folks that, you know, they murdered and exploited and, and, and repressed for centuries. Um, in order for the system to form. Um, but again, this, 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 uh, this limbo that we're all wrestling with, like at the same time, you're like, yes, give indigenous people back their lands. Um, and then we still have people here who are still attached to like ideas of private property. What does that mean? Do I have to give up my golf course? Uh, what about my mansion? Like <laughs> it's literally arbitrary things of people who's like, no. Private property, that's mine. I earned it. It's like, no, but you did it really. And this was never yours to earn or to have. Um, yeah, because yeah. so many arguments end up being about how to split up the pie. And it's yes. like, well, wait a minute, but but whose pie is this? Where did this pie come from? And of course, it wasn't just the thefts here and the stolen labor here. It's that the pie is made by exploiting people around the world All as well. Over the you know? world. So there's, you know, there's reparations that need to be to be made within the United States. And then but there's reparations that the United States needs to make to other people around the world as well. Yes. I mean, we are professionals at destabilizing 
um, and destabilizing other countries uh, for our own gains. And we'll go through, you know, all ends to, to, to make sure that happens. If it's a war, if it's a famine, whatever it is, we will do it. Yeah, and sanctions are just another form of that kind of warfare. Sanctions kill, too, yep. and that's not something we think of. Sanctions have become the favorite tool of the Democrats because it's not about having boots on the ground. But, you know, children are killed by sanctions just as much as they're killed by bombs, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is there some way you'd like to um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, because we've been talking for a, a little over an hour, and I really appreciate that you've spent all this time talking to me. I really have been just soaking it up and really enjoying it and appreciating all of it. And uh, is there any way that you'd like to kind of um, uh, wrap this up or, or, or say where people can follow or what, you know, just point some people in some directions maybe? Yeah, like I said, I think some of the initial steps is is just honoring that, you know, we're going to be in the space of like being in the birthing room and in the hospice uh, waiting room uh, at the same time for for a moment. I mean, not for a mo- moment, but for quite some time. Um, and at this point, it's not even a choice. Like we're at a point where literally Mother Nature said like, OK, enough is enough. Um, and that. COVID has forced us to reckon with, you know, something that we've taken for granted for years of making transformations happening that prioritize people over profits, that prioritizes our land um, and the environment and the climate around us over profits. Um, and, you know, the wealthy one percenters and the corporate developers like Mother Nature has literally said, "Nah, this is not going down. Um, so to lean into that space and of, of the birthing room. And I think the way that people can lean into that space is what we talked about earlier is starting with your own backyard, starting with your block in your own building. Have you made an effort to introduce yourself to your neighbors? Just saying, hi, how are you? Like making those type of connections. If it's through a zoom link, put your zoom link in a person's mailbox or something, um, but all this within COVID, like, how are you developing relationships and starting to unpack, you know, the prejudices that you even own that has blocked your ability to make deeper connections with folks? That's how we start leaning in and start breaking down those divisions um, that we've been conditioned to see as normal um, and to start building with each other. Um, and that could be, again, in your your home or your block in your union, at your job. Like there's so many places where you can start um, building with people just off of that baseline, you know, that basic human connection um, that we dismiss and, and, you know, withdraw from. Um, So I think leaning into that imagination, leaning into what is, what is right? I mean, and let me, and I'm saying this of like, it's not imagination to think that everyone deserves housing and that your ability to have housing um, should not be dictated by how much you earn or how much profit you can generate for someone else. Everyone should have basic health care, access to health care to make sure that they're healthy for their communities, 
for their families. These are things that we should not have to see as imaginative things that feel so, you know, impossible. These are the basics. So leaning into what are the basic rights <laughs> that honors people's humanities. And if you do that, you'll find yourself in the spaces that you need to be. If that's in your union, if that's in your local community defense committee, if that means you need to start those things because you're like, that's not existing. I think if you lean into those spaces, you'll be guided to where you need to be or what you need to do to step up and make sure those spaces do exist and continue to do the work of unpacking your own your own issues because what we don't need in our movement spaces any longer is us being traumatized and unhealed from our own issues and then coming in and trying to create change and end up projecting those same repressive and prejudicial dynamics onto one another. So do what you can to unpack your own shit and your baggage and heal yourself, <laughs> but be committed and leaning into what is that? What is the right? What is humanity? What is needed to uphold humanity in this time? What is needed to uphold and support the safety of our land, of our climate? Lean into those things. Um, and like I said, you'll be able to find where you need to go. Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z, with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. Commercial break narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast, and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit radiofreesunroot.com. Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace.